from Utah Public Radio. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. About 50 million miles from our planet, there is an asteroid called Bennu. And this is a pretty big rock in human scales. It's about 500 meters in diameter. But in space, it's just, well, it's just a speck. So even though this asteroid is 4.5 billion years old, we didn't even know it existed until it was found in 1999 by scientists from NASA and the United States Air Force who were scanning the skies for things that might threaten our planet. And it wasn't long after Bennu was discovered that some people, NASA people, started wondering whether we might be able to collect a sample from it. Nothing like that had ever happened before, but on September 8th of 2016, a rocket took off from Florida carrying with it a spacecraft roughly the size of a pickup truck called OSIRIS-REx. For five years, it traveled through space. And then on May 10th of 2021, it reached Bennu. Below the five meter mark, the hazard map is go for tag. Contact expected in 50 seconds. We're going in. We're going in. Touchdown declared. OSIRIS-REx was on the surface of the asteroid for just seconds. And then it was on its way back to Earth with, we think, a piece of asteroid inside of it. Special Projects producer Reagan Edelman has the story. been involved in this program since February of 2004, when the concept was first formulated uh, on a cocktail napkin at a uh, drinkery in Tucson, Arizona. That's Dante Loretta, and he's the science lead of the OSIRIS-REx mission. He believes the asteroid Bennu might be the single most dangerous rock in our entire solar system. It's got the highest probability of impacting the Earth of any object that we know of. But I don't want you to panic, right? Because the odds are low. It's one in 1,750 chance. I like to say you'd cross the street with those odds, right? Me personally, I'm not sure I like those odds at all. But Loretta doesn't seem all that concerned. And what you're really looking at here is it's almost like a droplet of liquid. It's a pile of rubble that's floating in microgravity. So it's boulders, it's gravel. And it's the result of a cosmic collision about a billion years ago in the main asteroid belt. Two much, much larger asteroids collided, shattered, created millions and millions of particles. Some of those re-collapsed into this pile of rubble that you see here today. The minerals, the chemicals that make up this asteroid, they formed over four and a half billion years ago at the dawn of our solar system. So what we're talking about here is a giant building-sized pile of rubble hurtling through space. If the impact is gonna occur, it's gonna be uh, late in the 22nd century. So I like to think of this as a bit of an insurance policy, right? This is a risk, likelihood is low, consequences are high. We have to do something to understand it. But to Dante, it's not the risk of impact that drives him as a scientist. He thinks we have to go back, and I mean way back, to really understand the importance and the relevance of this mission and of Bennu. So it's more than just a pile of rock. To me, it's a scientific time capsule from the very beginning of our solar system. 
It's older than the earth, and it really tells us about where we came from. We want to understand what happened with us, how we got to be here, but we also want to understand how common this is throughout the galaxy, and ultimately, how common is it for the origin of life to occur. This is all part of an idea about the origins of life called the exogenous delivery hypothesis, which is kind of a mouthful, but what it means is that things like amino acids and nucleic acids, which make up our proteins, DNA, and RNA, were delivered to Earth's surface after an impact with an asteroid. And the seeds of life rain down upon the planet, not just the organic molecules, but the water that makes up our oceans, the air that we breathe, we think all of these materials came late in planetary formation and were delivered by carbon-rich asteroids like asteroid Bennu. So OSIRIS-REx is not only essential to understanding the object that comes closest to impacting the Earth in the future, but it could play a key role in developing our understanding of how life started on Earth. And in order to answer those questions, a lot of things had to happen. So I'm Katie Carden. I'm a mechanical engineering senior manager at Lockheed Martin. So on OSIRIS-REx, I was the certified principal engineer for the sample return capsule. Cardin was part of the program from 2012 up until the launch of the capsule in September of 2016. You can kind of think of her as one of the parents of the spacecraft. Describing it as parenting is a really good analogy, actually, because I was pregnant and had my second son right in the middle of the product development, right? So I actually have a picture of me about eight months pregnant, zipped up in a clean room suit, with my hand on my belly, one hand on my belly and the other hand on my spacecraft, right? So they're my two babies kind of launching out on their mission. It took years of time, effort, and precision to put together a spacecraft that could do what NASA was hoping OSIRIS-REx would do. So when you're building up a spacecraft, what you do is you line up all the work you have to do and all the parts you got to make and all the parts you got to build and you got to find the very, the chain of events that takes the longest amount of time. We call that the critical path through the program. Once you've identified that, then you can start working on this and making sure that nothing along that path slips along the way. Her critical path involved everything from computer-aided design packaging to actually installing the thermal protection material onto the structure of the heat shield. So it's a lot of like collecting these little parts and bits as you go, stuff you buy from suppliers, and then you bring it all together and you build. And once you start really integrating, then you go on this path that we call ATLO, which is assembly, test, and launch operations. And that's where you bring all the pieces together and you start to see if they actually work. And then, 10 seconds, launch day, 9, 8, it's almost like, 7, 6, sending your kid to college, 5, 4, where you know they're going to learn and grow and like have these incredible experiences, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff of OSIRIS-REx, its seven-year mission to boldly go to the asteroid Bennu and back. Seven years later, OSIRIS-REx returns to Earth, or close to it at least. It's going to fly right past us, and if everything goes right, it will drop off a capsule with a sample of Bennu. And that's when a whole other part of the mission begins. You know, things 
like that. We're looking for different morphologies, different minerals, different types of stuff that may have been picked up along the way. This is Kimberly Allums, the OSIRIS-REx Curation Project Lead for the NASA Johnson Space Center. Once the capsule returns, she and her team will work in a clean room to dismantle it and to protect the sample inside. In here, generally what we do for gowning is that we dress top down. So we have a first layer of PPE, which is uh, personal protection equipment that we put on. We'll put on shoe booties to uh, keep debris contained in our shoes. We'll put on um, a first like hairnet. If you have a beard, we would put on a beard cover and then you'll put on a mask um, and then a first level of gloves to enter this, you know, to go into this space to prepare for full bunny suit. After that, they put on a hood and sometimes even a second pair of gloves. We really don't want oxygen and humidity getting into the sample because it could damage our sample. The plan is to encase the sample in nitrogen, which is very inert. And all of this is part of an effort to make sure that nothing on this planet, where life and its building blocks are everywhere, interferes with our ability to know whether or not those elements are also on Bennu. Some days I think we're just like everybody else of like going through our to-do list, trying to get everything done, but I'll have these moments of awe. This is Melissa Rodriguez. She's the Curation and Astromaterials Collections Lead. It's going to be something that has never been seen and is going to be, we think, different and definitely the, the um, cosmochemical, geochemical way it was collected. It's going to be so much more pristine, so much more unchanged from where it came from the asteroid that it's, it's just really incredible to think about in between all the busyness that like once a week I'm like, oh my God. And they think about it all the time. Yes, honestly, yes. Yeah. There's a good portion of time where we're all like, I woke up and I had to write these notes down yeah. because something popped in my head. And so all of us have these stories where we're like, yeah, so I went to sleep and I woke up thinking about OREX and stuff we had to do for rehearsal or things that we think about after the fact. So it's, it's all of us. We're all invested in making this very successful and a very clean disassembly as, as much as we can. But before the curation process can even begin, the capsule has to make it safely back to Earth. And that's not guaranteed. As OSIRIS-REx gets closer to the planet, about two weeks before it's set to release the capsule, NASA will send it one final set of instructions to turn on its thrusters, and to ensure a proper trajectory. If we were to lose track of the spacecraft or lose communications with the spacecraft, as soon as we do that burn at 14 days out, if the spacecraft never hears from us again, it will just autonomously divert past the Earth um, and take the capsule with it. This is Mike Moreau. He's in charge of the recovery operations for NASA. Uh, but all of our planning and procedures are therefore set up to be safe and to verify that the capsule and the spacecraft are on the right track. If they are, then we send the final commands to execute that release just about six hours before. The capsule gets released about four hours before entry. It took about two years for the capsule and the spacecraft to get to the vicinity of the Earth. We are getting very close now. Uh, on September 24th, the spacecraft will be targeted to, to the Earth. It will re release the sample capsule. Uh, which will enter the Earth's atmosphere off the coast of California. Once the capsule is ejected, it will be on a ballistic trajectory with no communications and no thrusters. So Moreau and other scientists are really just relying on faith that everything will go as planned. Uh, within two minutes, it'll be at the Nevada-Utah uh, border and a drogue chute will come out, then a main parachute, and it is targeted and land in the center of the Utah Test and Training Range. And that's presumably where Richard Witherspoon and his team will find it. 
Witherspoon is the ground recovery lead at Lockheed Martin, and he's been a part of the mission for a long time. I was part of the team that built the spacecraft. I was an electrical test conductor, so I ran all the tests on the spacecraft as we were building it. And then after we launched it, I was in the launch control room giving the go. And then I moved into science operations. So I actually have flew this spacecraft for a number of years, uh, helping the scientists get all of their stuff. And I went and worked a couple other missions and got the opportunity to come back to take on the recovery role, which is pretty amazing to get to see there from the birth to the end of the prime mission. Now he'll help bring the capsule home. But again, that's only if things go somewhat according to plan. And so far it has. The launch went off without a hitch. The spacecraft has done exactly what it needed to do, all the while traveling across more than 4 billion miles of space. But there's also been some luck involved. I call it the trickster asteroid. It always surprises us. This is Dante Loretta again. If we had not fired those engines to back away from Bennu, I think we would have just sunk in like quicksand and the spacecraft would have disappeared. When OSIRIS-REx made contact with Bennu, the asteroid reacted entirely differently than what the team had been expecting. Rather than being a hard surface, the asteroid seemed almost viscous when the sample was gathered. But the team had only ever intended for the spacecraft to land on Bennu for about 15 seconds, and they'd programmed the engines to launch it back into space super quickly, and that's what prevented it from sinking into Bennu and getting stuck. What they did leave behind, however, was a giant crater. It was about 25 feet across, right? When we expected something on the order of maybe 10 to 20 inches across. So the surface really just erupted uh, in a massive way. And some great science came out of that. We really learned a lot about the nature of these bodies. And one of the most exciting things that this taught the team, the rock was fragile and friable. Things that would not survive passage through the Earth's atmosphere to land as meteorites, which is our current collection of asteroid samples. So I think we're bringing back something that's distinct uh, from the material in our collections on Earth today. And because the sample is so distinct, the potential for learning is extensive. And when, or if, the capsule returns on the 24th of September, it's not the end of the mission, but rather a new beginning. That's Regan Edelman. She's a special projects producer for Undisciplined, and she's planning to be on hand in September when a capsule carrying a sample from the asteroid Bennu returns to Earth. And in the time we have left today, we'd like you to consider this question. Could you picture space if you had never seen an image of space? Well, that's the question that Kimberly Arcand challenged us to consider when we chatted with her in December of 2020. And she told us to not just think about trying to imagine a bunch of speckled dots against a pitch black background. Try also to imagine how you would perceive the swirling cosmic gas clouds that have been captured by the Hubble Space Telescope and the colorful spiraling galaxies that are made palpable by the Chandra X-ray Observatory. For millions of people with severe visual impairments, this isn't a hypothetical question. But when Arcand decided that she wanted to create an audible way to experience space, she wasn't just thinking about people who experience blindness. Arcand, who is a data visualization scientist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, said experiencing space by sound 
can help everyone gain a better understanding of what is out there in galaxies far, far away. I started working for NASA's Chandrayaan Observatory back in 1998, and when you are working with X-ray data of the universe, well, that's not something humans can ever see, right? So. You have to be creative, I think, as to how you understand it and also how you represent it. There are endless ways you could decide to do that, but Arcand and her team decided to take images that were made from X-ray and infrared and optical data from outer space and scan those images like a musical score. Here's what the X-ray data sounds like. And this is a clip of the sonification of an infrared image. And this is an optical image. Arkan told us that when she sat down and closed her eyes and listened to the final products of the space sonification project, she was overwhelmed. Oh, I had chills. I really, truly had chills. And I was so excited. Like, I started playing it for my kids, my husband. I started playing it for like some of my other collaborators that I work on other projects with. And I'll be like, listen to this. Tell me what you think. I was just so excited because it came out beautiful, I think. I mean, clearly I'm biased, but it just, the sound was truly beautiful to me. But she also told us she wasn't satisfied. It just made her curious about all of the other ways she could approach this challenge of making space data tangible to human senses. It just made me realize how many different opportunities there were to not only understand the data, but to also communicate the data. And I've pretty much never looked back. I've just kept pursuing how many more ways can we translate this? How many more ways can we interpret this to make it more accessible, more approachable, more helpful? So a few moments ago, we played the X-ray, infrared, and optical sonification separately. But for my money, the best way to listen to these is in composite.
That's our program for today. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider donating to support our program. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our story about the return of a sample from the asteroid Bennu was reported by Reagan Edelman. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.